little boy stood in the workshop barely able to see over the workbench as his father patiently whittled away at a little piece of wood. This boy was fascinated. He was eight years old. He should be fascinated. But he was also puzzled. What on earth could his father be doing? This work seemed to have no purpose and no beauty and no reason. He was just cutting very slowly more and more tiny shavings off an already very thin spike. Surely, if he, if he went on like that, there would soon be nothing left. This little piece of wood was so small. And he questioned his dad with a critical tone. And his dad wrinkled his brow. And as he was concentrating hard, and he didn't really need interrupting at that time, and he said to his son, shouldn't see a job half done. The boy wondered, hmm, what was going on? And a few days later, everything was revealed. When the little boy came down from breakfast, there on the table was a model ship inside of a bottle. A little boy had witnessed him carving one of the last spars, a tiny but perfect part of a small but perfect ship, inserted in the traditional fashion into the bottle and its mass raised, and once inside, the mass raised by pulling a thread that made everything stand up at last. At no stage of that project until the final act performed when the family was away in bed could curious eyes have seen how it was going to work out. The final day revealed the worth of the work. The final day revealed the worth of the work. And so it is, Paul says to the Corinthians, with spiritual leaders in the church. It's very tempting for people to want to make everything and check off everything now in this life and to pay off what they see as, as uh, needs to be evaluated here at this time, ahead of time. And we think we know what God should do and we're eager to give Him advice and also tell others about it too. Apparently that's what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul again is faced with this task here of explaining to the Corinthian Christians that he wants them to take the cross-centered view, the cross-shaped view of ministry, and throw out the world's view of ministry and their own version of ministry. They seem to think that their new status as Christians, uh, together with this so-called wisdom that they think they've got in the world's eyes, gives them the right to pass judgment on people in an incorrect and wrong way, including Paul himself. Paul doesn't measure up to what they think a fully-fledged Christian teacher should be like. And so, okay, we're going to pass judgment on him. And Paul's response to this in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-7 through is this, don't see the job half done. It's not finished yet. And when judgment comes, it will bring to light a lot of other things, as well as his own shortcomings, if there were some, and I'm sure they were, as Paul wasn't a perfect man, but it would also show something about their own intentions. And so the point of being a minister of the gospel, Paul says, is that not that one should be showy and spectacular or even be successful in the world's eyes, but that one should be faithful. Josiah read 1 Corinthians 4, 1-7, and the whole point of this is, this is how you ought to regard the perspective you ought to have, the attitude you need to have towards spiritual leaders in the church. And to me, it's hard to preach this as a spiritual leader in this church because it seems a little self-serving in one sense, but it is for the good of the church and any spiritual leader that may stand here or be a part of our church ministry team. 
Right now I am the only serving pastor, the only serving elder, the only serving overseer of this particular local church. And I have taught on, discussed the idea of a team of leaders for several years. I told us at the beginning of this year, 2018, that I believe it would be good for us to consider to bring along Birch Champion as a fellow pastor, a fellow elder to serve here. And as the church champions return from California this week and will be with us most of the rest of the year, I'm going to work to present Bert to you folks here through examination of his, of his character by you all, by myself, especially of how he leads his home, his competency uh, in the Word, and his desire to minister to people as a candidate to eventually vote on uh, this year through due process here as God allows. And if by God's grace, God does allow uh, uh, pending the, the church approval here, Birch to serve in this role, and as we seek to build a team of pastors and elders here beyond us, then 1 Corinthians 4, 1-7 through 7, needs to be the template for how the congregation is to regard pastors and elders, whoever they are, now and in the future. You see, most people at some point or another dream of themselves becoming great leaders. And their minds kind of bring up this idea according to the world's terms of what a leader is. Of course, what a leader is depends on what they're leading, right? The field, like uh, in the NBA Finals, LeBron James, the leader of his team for the Cleveland Cavaliers, is going to look a little bit different than the leader of the historical society and union. Their, their fields kind of, kind of uh, change uh, the, the way they lead. But there are some things that are common. And the person who uh, daydreams about being a leader in virtually any field, maybe the CEO of a successful business or the coach of a very successful professional team uh, or, or whatever it might be, imagines what it is like to be the best. To be better than everybody else. To succeed where others have failed. To be strong where others have stumbled. To outcreate what others have done. Uh, to win applause. Uh, uh, to be a leader may mean fame and money and some freedoms from the responsibilities uh, and, and the ordinary life of the ordinaries. So be a leader. Though very infrequently, rarely involves someone daydreaming about the responsibilities and the pressures and the temptations leaders face. The accountability, the service, and the suffering. And here in this passage, Paul isn't asking the Corinthians to pretend their leaders are something that they are not. The Corinthians and Paul, as has been explained in the previous chapter, Get their true identities from God, not from how someone else might correctly or incorrectly identify them or describe them or judge them. Paul's identity is not established by the Corinthians, but by God. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul is saying, you must agree with this assessment. First thing I'd like us to see this morning is that cross-shaped leaders, and this is the leaders that Paul is referring to, cross-shaped ministry leaders, manage under Christ. They manage under Christ. Look at verse 1. Let a man so account of us, so take judgment of this, he says, so assess us as of the ministers of Christ. 
The ministers of Christ. That word ministers there is not the usual word that's used in the New Testament. The Greek word doulos, which is usually translated slave. It's a different word here. Uh, it meant originally an under rower. An under rower. Someone who was an under rower in the Roman and Greek ships uh, that would um, be, be uh, uh, paddled by the oars down in the, in the galley there. And they would, they would play to the beat of a, of a specific cadence of a drum of someone who led them. Was simply someone uh, who was one of the lowest. Maybe some of you have seen Ben-Hur, the old movie Ben-Hur. And you remember this scene where after he is taken captive, he is uh, made a slave and he is forced to uh, row in the bottom of a, of, a, of a Roman ship where they meet some of the Greeks there who are rebellion. And it's a, it's a miserable life. This is where this word minister comes from. And it could describe a wide range of activities and roles from Someone who serves in a household in a menial role to a junior officer who helps a superior. But really what it means is this. They are subordinates. They are subordinates. In other words, they answer to a higher authority. They are subordinates. And therefore, Paul is saying, as a minister of Christ, that is how you are to regard us. That is how you are to think about us. Church leaders are hardly worthy of an ultimate loyalty or attachment. In other words, they are to direct loyalty to Jesus Christ. Because they are simply His subordinates. Subordinates. And so someone who is a church leader is someone who is simply responding to a higher authority and doing his job. This authority is that of none other than Jesus Christ. And so, cross-shaped leadership, Christian leadership in the church, manages out of being under Jesus Christ. Skip ahead to the next point there. But secondly, I'd like you to look at the rest of verse 1 there. Let a man so account of us, or so regard us, or have this perspective of us, as of the ministers of Christ, and he says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. This second term here, stewards, uh, translated here, is the idea of those who have been entrusted with something. In fact, it's translated uh, in, in other translations that way. In ancient world, the ancient world, this would mean overseeing, responsibility for overseeing a household budget. Uh, purchasing, accounts, resources, collecting debts, general running of a, an establishment, uh, the guidelines agreed by, by, the, by, the, by, the, by someone who was the head of the house, who had a house and a, and a fortune large enough to need someone to manage his household. Today you might compare that to an estate manager. This word steward is actually used of one of the Corinthians, a man by the name of Erastus at the end of Romans chapter 16, who's described as a steward. And the idea there was he was one of the city, the Corinth, the, the administrators of the city of Corinth. He oversaw the management of the city uh, uh, needs. It was somebody who supervised a large estate. He had a responsible position. He was set over others. And he directed the day-to-day affairs, but he was subject to one who was a master. And oftentimes, he was a fellow slave. He just had this position of being subject to a master. So in relation to the master, he was still a slave. In relation to the slaves, he was their leader. But Paul says this is an individual who is a steward 
of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. And what I want you to see here is that cross-shaped leaders manage out of the mysteries of God. They manage the Word of God. What the New Testament has now been revealed, what God has now been revealed, that is what a steward of Jesus Christ ministers from. They have their agenda already set, in other words, by the Master. You're wondering, what what does He mean by the mysteries of God? We've got to go back to chapter 2 and see in verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory. And now, Paul, and then Paul will go on to say, but now this mystery, the unfolding plan of God, the crucified Messiah, is what he equates it to. The gospel has been revealed. So when he talks about the mysteries of God, it's the New Testament. The New Testament not detached from the Old Testament, like we only need the New Testament now, but the New Testament as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. How it unfolded here. And so a, a, a minister of Jesus Christ here is one who ministers the New Testament. The unfolding plan of God. The new revelation of God. And connects it to the Old and how the Old unfolds into it. And chapter 2, verse 10 He says, but God has revealed them to us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So these mysteries of God refer to the gospel, the unfolding plan of God for the nations, to the promise made to Abraham, to be a blessing to all the nations. This is what the mysteries of God refer to. The gospel in all its fullness. And so the servants of Christ have this basic charge laid on them that is non-negotiable. They have been entrusted with the gospel and all their service turns on the gospel being revealed and building up the people of God by word, example, discipline to live it out and reaching the nations with the gospel. This is the charge that is laid on them. You might say, well, a lot of these things we're talking about here sound like they should be true for all Christians. And you're right. You're right. But the difference between who Paul is talking about and all Christians is the degree, the intensity in which this is true. Paul will then go on to say in verses 2 through 5, for... Moreover, it is required in stewards, this idea of a household manager, someone entrusted with the mysteries of God, that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Paul says, yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. This leads us to the third point here, and it is this, that cross-shaped leaders manage for the glory of God. Manage for the glory of God. They minister to the people of God. They equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. But they are not assessed on the world's criteria of wisdom. The world's criteria of eloquence. The world's criteria of a charismatic personality. And we might be tempted to judge ministers on their so-called success or their giftedness in terms of their interpersonal relationships or their speaking. But the sole requirement that Paul counsels them to keep in their mind is that stewards are to be faithful to God. 
What's interesting is when you read the qualifications of a minister of the gospel, a pastor, an elder in the, in the New Testament that Paul goes on to share, is that there's no special qualifications really except for one. When you look at all the things that are supposed to be true of someone who has desires the work of a bishop or an overseer or a pastor, the most remarkable thing about that list is that it is unremarkable. They're very ordinary, normal things that actually are commanded of all Christians everywhere. The only thing that is different is that an overseer must be able or have the skill of teaching the Word of God. But everything else on that list, elsewhere in the New Testament, is required of all believers. And so therefore, what Paul is saying here in chapter 4, verse 2, is the requirement in stewards is that a man be found faithful with this character and with this particular skill set, able to teach. What this means is this. Because we're, we're talking about cross-shaped leaders who are ministering not for their own benefit, not to build a platform for themselves, but for the platform of Jesus Christ, managing the household of God for the glory of God, then it means this, the presentation of the message and the messenger's own demeanor in his life must match the message of a crucified Messiah. That is what it means to be cross-shaped leaders. Well, we say, but all Christians ought to serve Christ, certainly. But the point is that exactly. If all Christians ought to serve Christ, how much more should their leaders do? Right? If all Christians enjoy this, this mysteries that have been imparted by the Spirit and now revealed of the Word of God, how much more should leaders who have been entrusted with this great heritage handle it wisely? What Paul is doing in this passage here is setting things right amongst the Corinthians' thinking. And their thinking was wrong in this way. Was Paul popular? Is Apollos a better orator than Paul? And Paul is saying in verse 2, the main issue is not that. The issue in which you evaluate your leaders, and he'll go on to explain why that's not even necessarily that important. The main issue is this. Have Paul, Apollos, Peter been faithful to do the work that God assigned to them? That's the issue. And friends, Jesus had the same test in mind when he tells these parables, doesn't he, in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. If a steward of God is faithful, then he is a good steward and he will be rewarded. In 1940, Clarence Jordan founded a Koinonia farm in America's Georgia as a haven for uh, racial unity and reconciliation, cooperation, And in 1944, the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except Jordan's home. And in the middle of that raid, Jordan recognized the voice of a local newspaper reporter who happened to be there. And the next day, the reporter showed up for a story about the arson, and the rubble was still smoldering, the coals were still burning, and he found Jordan in a field planting seeds. And he said to Jordan, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night. I came out to do a story on the closing of your farm. And Jordan just kept planting and hoeing. And the reporter continues prodding. And there's no response from Jordan. Finally, the reporter said, you have got two PhDs. This is a man who was a Bible college professor, Bible seminary professor. You put 14 years into this farm and now there's nothing left. Just how successful... Do you think you've been? And with that statement, Jordan stopped hoeing. 
He put his hole in his shoulder. He turned and he faced this reporter. He said, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. And Paul is bringing that out. The world's definition of success is vastly different from the Christian version of success. A servant doing ministry, and any of you who have led any type of ministry, and Pastor Finnemore can attest to this being a pastor, is always being judged. Always being critiqued. There is always somebody criticizing something he does. And Paul points out here in verses 3 through 5 that there's three judgments in the life of Stuart. There's a man's judgment in verse 3. There's a servant's, the minister's own self-judgment, examining his own heart. But the one that matters is God's judgment in verse 4. And so Paul says this, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not myself. What he's saying is this. When I am criticized, my master's judgment is far more important. It is not even important that I myself judge and criticize my own life. Ultimately, what matters is not your opinion, the church. What does not matter is necessarily my opinion, What matters ultimately is that third opinion, the master's opinion. Because I am a steward of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am overseeing his household. We are indeed servants of the Corinthians. That's what chapter 3 talked about. And all things are yours, Paul said, the Corinthians, to bring you to, to a greater and fuller, deeper knowledge and relationship with God. To reach the world. But the Corinthians were not Paul's masters. Their only master was God. So Paul says, it is then a very small matter what you think of me. Or that matter what anyone thinks of me. You might say, well, Paul, that sounds a little arrogant here. Um, uh, you, I don't care, you don't care what you're judged by me or our human court here, which is uh, what he's referring to in chapter 4. Verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time, that's the day, before the day, okay, by any human day, don't judge anything in the human days, judge things by the day, that'll bring it to light. I might be criticized, Paul's saying, by many quarters, but in the end, only the owner's opinion matters. And only the owner's assessment should concern him or her. Human days of judgment pale in comparison with that great day that is appointed, that is a calendar day that cannot be postponed, where a minister of God will face the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. See chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. And so the assessment of God's ministers that ultimately counts... It's not by the congregation and it's not even by their own assessment. Though Paul says, I've looked in my own heart, I feel I have a clean conscience. He tells uh, one, of the, one of the Roman leaders when he is being uh, held on trial, that I herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience that is void of offense. In Acts 24 verse 10. But here what Paul is saying is at the end of the day, it is the Lord who has assigned, assigned me the task that I am accountable for. He's not aware of any great matter which he's failed in his Christian service. But Paul says, I don't rest in the confidence in that. 
And in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. That will make everything manifest. And so he says, you're judging servants, God's servants at the wrong time. You're judging by the wrong standard. And you're judging with the wrong motive. They looked down on Paul and they exalted the as other servants of Jesus Christ who were doing the same thing as Paul was doing, planting and watering, uh, uh, building up the, 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 from the foundation of Jesus Christ with materials that will last. And Paul says, what matters is God's evaluation when it's all said and done. Now, please, don't misunderstand here. That God's servants are stewards of His truth and that doesn't mean that they are without rebuke. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, I'd like you to turn there very quickly, tells what to do when there is a minister of God who is out of line, who is out of line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here is, here is the method of examination. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy double honor, especially they who labor in the word and in doctrine or teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Again, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. So there is a, co- a correct accountability for leaders. Paul's not saying you guys are above the law and you are lone rangers. He's not saying that. In fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians 5, the very next chapter, he says, one of the problems with you, Corinthian church, is that you are not judging yourselves. You are not judging each other. You are not holding each other accountable. And you're tolerating sin in your midst. So it can't be that Paul is saying that you're free from the law, you're free from being any criticism. What Paul is saying is ultimately the only criticism that counts is God's criticism. I remember in ministry a difficult situation where uh, someone was writing slanderous things about me that I knew were not true. And saying some very difficult things that were really misinformed. And I had to step back and say, okay, I don't have that perspective. I feel that I'm doing what God's called me to do and I'm teaching what I'm supposed to be teaching. So I feel my conscience is clean. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think or what that individual thinks. And it is a small matter of what they think of me. Ultimately, I have to stand before God and give an account. And it was upon that realization that I realized that really matters. And that individual's harsh criticism and slander and judgment of me I could say in humility is a very small matter. It's a very small matter because of the towering majesty of God and having to stand before Him. And so what Paul is saying is that those who follow Christian leaders must recognize that leaders are called to please the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore they must refrain from standing in judgment over them in this way. In other words, it's important for leaders to see themselves as servants of Christ. They have been given this magnificent commission, this entrusting with the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also important for the church to see that they are ultimately accountable to Jesus Christ. Yes, they are accountable to the congregation. But they are ultimately accountable to Jesus Christ. And therefore, they are not the final arbitrators of success. 
And finally, in verse 6 and 7, Paul says this, and he brings it to a head. He says, this is what I've been driving at. These things, brethren, I have in a figure, in a symbol, transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. In other words, this thinking here in verses 1 through 6, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, above what the Word of God says, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who makes you to differ from another? And what have you that you did not receive that was given to you? Now, if you did receive it, why you boast? As if you had not received it. And here is where this all comes full circle again. Fourthly and finally, cross-shaped leaders manage the household of God for the good of others. Paul says, it is because of this position of God that I serve you for your good. And Paul here is applying the theology of the cross that he's talked about in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 16, to the Christian life and the leadership. And his whole point here, and you're going to see this in verses 14 through 17, is to urge them to imitate him, to follow his way of life in Christ Jesus. And this way of life is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. It means to go the way of the cross. One of the poets said, Is it the way the master trod? Shall not the servant tread it still? Friends, our Lord Jesus walked this same path, is what Paul is saying. Our, friend, our, our, our Lord Jesus walked the path of humility, walked the path of scorn, because He set His face like a flint on Jerusalem for the cross. Because He realized that even more than His necessary food, He must obey the will of His Father to give His life as a ransom for many. And our Lord Jesus served in this way. And Paul is saying, am I exempt? Like Isaac Watts, a songwriter, said, am I a soldier of the cross? At the end of his song, he said, should I just lay on flowery beds and live a life of ease? He says, no, I must go the way Jesus Christ, the way of the cross. And what this sentence, Paul tells the Corinthians in verses 6 to 7 exactly why he has been giving all these pictures of farms and buildings and now household managers here. Paul says, it was for your benefit, for your sakes, that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Let the Word of God be what defines us. Everything that has come before in 1 Corinthians and the rest of what 1 Corinthians 4 says so that you will not take pride in the one over against another is what Paul is drawing his sword and attacking here. Their problem is pride. They are boasting. They think they deserved what God has given them. They believe they are special people and that's how God has entitled them. And Paul is saying, no, what you got was a gift. What you received is not because you are awesome, it's because God is awesome and you were. You received His grace. That's what Paul is saying here. And so Paul commends them to the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And he lastly takes this thrust here with his sword in verse 7. And he says, why are you so presumptuous? Who in the world do you think you are anyway? 
What kind of self-delusion is it that allows you to put yourself in a position to be so critical of the master's servant? And then Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? You're presumptuous, but you're also ungrateful. And this is an invitation of the Corinthians to be honest with God and say, in light of an eternal God, I am nothing. And Paul says, invitation is here. Get on your knees before God. Don't brag. Don't use the gifts God has given as a way to puff yourself up. Use it as a way to bring yourself lower and to think of yourself less and think of others more. Because those who have experienced grace live from this posture of unbounded gratitude. And by the way, pride thrives in the soil of ingratitude. It grows like a very fast-growing weed. And ingratitude soil. These Corinthians, they think of themselves gift, especially gifted with the spirit of, and, and, and wisdom. They're so good at judging one another. They totally misunderstand grace and they miss the humility of God in the crucified one. The very one who brought them to this point, built this church. And Paul says, <clears throat> the way of the crucified one is the way I'm walking. And you're out of line. Paul says, since you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? And this boasting here is graceless, isn't it? Grace leads to gratitude. So-called worldly wisdom and self-sufficiency leads to boasting and judging. But grace has this leveling, this self-leveling effect here, doesn't it? Self-esteem has a self-exalting effect. Look at me. But grace means humility. Because humility says, I haven't arrived, but one has. There is one who has in my place. And so Paul puts his finger on the problem here. Their wicked judgmentalism is, is, is out of pride. And this arrogance is being leveled against the ones who are operating, he'll go on to say in verses 8 through 13, operating as the scum of the earth in a difficult situation. The very gospel of the crucified Messiah, the good news by which these people are saved, is incompatible with arrogancy. What Paul is saying. If I say two names to you, you're going to immediately think a couple things about them. George Washington, Benedict Arnold. Right? Both were actually very skilled and gifted men, dynamic men of action. They had unquestionable personal courage. They were driven by passionate ambition at an early age. They were actually both were able to inspire the men that they led to commit acts of sacrifice and endurance. You might not know this, but George Washington was a little hot-tempered. They both were. Yet despite all these similarities, one of them was a traitor and one is called the father of his country. Ultimately, it all boiled down to character. A case of honor versus glory. George Washington seemed to be guided by a sense of honor and dignity. Benedict Arnold was driven by a thirst for personal glory and what it could bring out of that. Both men hungered for greatness in the sense that they wanted to bring honor to their country, but to Washington, greatness meant something differently. Greatness meant that he must put himself underneath a greater cause. He must learn from his mistakes. He must grow in strength. And to Arnold, greatness meant triumphing himself over others. 
And the war was just a vehicle for that. Arnold had some great achievements in America's independence. He helped drive the British out of Boston in the early part of the war. He took the offensive against the British in two battles that ended the surrender of the entire British army at Saratoga. But he had a consistent pattern of insubordination, excessive drinking, living lavishly and overspending. And he tried to recoup his fortunes by marrying a young, wealthy beauty named Peggy Shippen. And Peggy Shippen's connections to the British led Arnold to a young British officer named Major John Andre, who served as a middleman for Arnold's later treason. Ultimately, when you chart it all out, it was Arnold's own self-exalting nature that was key to his betrayal in the United States of America. He had no core sense of duty or honor to counterbalance his personal grievances. It was all about him, and so, therefore, treason was just a career move. And so we think of the two names, George Washington and Benedict Arnold, in totally different terms, don't we? That's not how a minister of the gospel can serve. Not how any believer can be. In his book, The Masculine Mandate, God's Calling the Men, Richard Phillips shows us that behind every great man in history is a humble person who actually helped make that man great. He points this out, that there's two statues in Washington, D.C. That together they tell a remarkable story when you piece the two together. One is a massive memorial to General Ulysses S. Grant that stands at the east end of the reflecting pool. It's literally in the morning shadow of the U.S. Capitol building. And you can, if you're visiting Washington, D.C., you can hardly pass this majestic uh, 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 monument here to the, you, the, this legendary general, Ulysses S. Grant, on his war stallion. And uh, Grant had a lot of struggles and problems, but ultimately he was the one who received the papers from Robert E. Lee for the surrender of the Southern Army. Two and a half miles away. In Washington, D.C., there's a little city park. It's a nice little park. It's nondescript. But there's a more commonplace memorial, and there's a little statue there. And there's a Civil War figure, Major General John Rollins. This statue is actually eight different places in Washington, D.C., but it's hardly noticed by visitors. But Rollins had been a lawyer in Galena, Illinois, and where Grant had lived just prior to the war. He became Grant's chief of staff. And Rollins knew Grant's character flaws, especially his weakness for alcohol, which is why Grant made some of the bold moves he did in the Civil War. He was drunk. At the beginning of the war, Rollins extracted a pledge from Grant to stay away from drunkenness. And when the general threatened to break his promise on that, his friend would plead with him and support him until Grant could get back on track. And in many ways, it was Rollins who stood beside General Grant as really a lonely figure of Grant the General. Rollins' memorial is very small compared to the glory afforded Grant, yet without Rollins' love and support, Grant would have not even been able some days to literally get into the saddle of his horse. Friends, that is the worth of cross-shaped leaders. They put themselves aside to point people to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is worthy. They see others as more important than they are. 
simply servants of Jesus Christ, given authority to serve Him by serving others, by pointing them away from the sin of destruction and into the Christ, the crucified Messiah, and new creation living. Let's pray.